Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Carter. It's Thursday, February 23rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. STAT's Ed Silverman joins us to explain how an escalating fight between Vertex Pharmaceuticals and insurance companies has left patients caught in the middle. We'll discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the demise of a one-time unicorn, Moderna's earnings, and an official biotech presidential run. But first, a word from our sponsor. Attention healthcare innovators and biotech enthusiasts. Are you ready to explore the intersection of medicine, biology, and technology? Then mark your calendars for the STAT Breakthrough Summit this spring in San Francisco. This event brings together leaders across the industry to discuss how to unlock the full potential of this exciting new era in medicine. Speakers include Stephen Gillett, the CEO of Verily, and Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR. These experts will share their insights on how technology and innovation are transforming healthcare for the benefit of patients. Plus, the summit will be led by STAT reporters, giving you access to the latest developments in the field and in-depth analysis of the industry. So join us this May 3rd and 4th at the STAT Breakthrough Summit and be a part of the conversations delving into the incredible advancements happening in the field that are shaping the future of healthcare. Learn more and register today for a limited discounted ticket at statnews.com slash summit. So let's kick off with Moderna earnings. Damien, what did those numbers look like? Well, so Moderna, a company that spent many, many years losing money in the quest to develop medicines out of mRNA, suddenly was making huge handful, I'll say handfuls, but there's far more money that could fit in anyone's hand, billions of dollars is, is what I should say, uh, from SpikeVax, which was its COVID-19 vaccine. Everybody remembers this, but the angst in recent months and even more than a year is just how long will those billions of dollars keep flowing inward as demand for COVID-19 vaccines wanes. And so this week we got the news that Moderna is expecting to make about $5 billion in SpikeVax sales in 2023. That is well below what had been the Wall Street consensus of about $8 billion. And it means that Moderna will return to being a non-profitable loss-making company uh, in the year to come, depending on how that demand shakes. And that's not shocking. I mean, this is kind of just like tearing the Band-Aid off and making it official. Everybody knew this was coming. Even in the best case scenario, Moderna's follow-on products were not going to be uh, marketable in 2023. Um, that may change next year. But it is, I mean, just kind of the the end stages of what has been like a remarkable saga in biotech. It's so rare for a company to go from, like I said, the, the loss-taking research-focused uh, entity to becoming a multi-billion dollar profitable household name over the course of just a few months. But that's where we are now. I'm still stuck on the pronunciation of angst. I had no idea it was pronounced that way. <laughs> I'm not sure I have an idea as to whether it's being pronounced that way. We'll find out. Uh, so, uh, of course, one of the things that people are watching so closely with Moderna, you know, there are a number of things that sort of take it beyond the COVID vaccine from its RSV vaccine to its flu vaccine, which, which had recently some sort of mixed data, um, but also the personalized cancer vaccine, which it's partnered on with Merck. And they showed in December that 
uh, combining these products could reduce the risk of recurrence of melanoma or, or death uh, by 44% compared with just using Keytruda in the adjuvant setting. So after you perform a surgery to remove the melanoma and try to prevent the cancer from coming back. Um, so that looked really good. We learned this week that the FDA has granted uh, that combination breakthrough therapy designation, which isn't necessarily surprising, but you did see Moderna's stock move about 3% on that news. Um, I was talking with Michael Yee at Jeffries about it, and he said he actually wasn't surprised to see the stock move just because it is good news. It shows obviously the FDA is thinking this is important and could sort of expedite it to market, although they are still planning on running a phase three trial. So we'll see if they could get accelerated approval based on the you know, phase 2B, um, or if they have to run the phase three. Um, he also said this is a market of about a billion dollars, the adjuvant, you know, high-risk melanoma setting, but combined with all the other potential markets, and when you think about Keytruda being the ultimate pipeline in a product, that's a lot of potential uh, applications here for this personalized cancer vaccine. Um, he thinks it's a 5 to $10 billion uh, sort of addressable market. So we'll have to see how that bears out. But also on Wednesday night, Reuters reported on this, uh, that Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, two other Democrats sent a letter to the patent office urging them to uh, scrutinize Keytruda's patents um, more than they are doing, uh, and specifically focused on the subcutaneous uh, version of Keytruda that Merck's working on to change the administration to be able to do a, you know, a shot under the skin uh, versus the IV administration now. Um, and so it's all just kind of interesting. I feel like this is all sort of coming together with Bernie Sanders being the chair of the health committee, which we talked about last week, you know, hauling Stefan Bunsell uh, in front of Congress uh, to yell at him about how, what they're charging for the COVID vaccine. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders coming together uh, to try to focus on Keytruda patents. Um, I don't know. Are we in this sort of new era? We talked with Vaz Narasimhan last week about how pharma kind of lost its way in lobbying against the Inflation Reduction Act. Is there just more pressure right now on pharma in Washington? I think there is, Meg. And, you know, you mentioned Keytruda obviously is a huge product for Merck. It's, you know, like the now now that Humira is sort of, uh, you know, the AbbVie product is is off patent. Uh, you know, Keytruda is kind of front and center, right, uh, in terms of the billions of dollars it brings into Merck and the fact that it is, you know, the patents are going to be expiring soon. And so you mentioned that subcutaneous, you know, the injection under the skin formulation that they are working on. And that is that is a key part of Merck's strategy to maintain the revenue that it gets from its immuno and you know its immuno oncology uh, franchise, which is so important, and you know, and so and and likewise, it's important like these partnerships that they're doing with Moderna, with the with the vaccine and combining it with Keytruda. Uh, you know, it, you noted that you know the the initial development plan is in in melanoma, but I also see that you know they are uh, they specifically mentioned testing that combination, the combination of the vaccine and Keytruda in lung cancer, which obviously is the biggest. A commercial market for a cancer indication. Yeah, I think it's really exciting to see that these personalized cancer vaccines may finally be starting to work. Um, you know, I was on Squawk Box Thursday morning talking about this, and Joe Kernan sort of started asking me about all the patent strategies around this stuff. And he was like, oh, it'd be really disheartening if you know they're only testing this stuff in order to extend the patent life. And you think they're not only doing it because of that, but like it also you know, is obviously appealing to them <laughs> to be able to do it. I think the timing of some of these things is interesting, right? It's like life cycle management. Could they have done this subcutaneous version of Keytruda earlier, but instead it's coming about right as they're about to lose patent protection on the IV formulation? Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, we haven't actually seen any of the data from 
that Moderna Merck vaccine key trudeau combination, uh, you know, it's been press released. I think maybe we'll see it at ASCO in June. Meg, I know I'm going to be there. Maybe you'll be there. And and I think if it if those data are presented, that will be a very important um, presentation that a lot of people will be paying attention to. Speaking of attention, this is a really tenuous segue. Speaking of attention, uh, <laughs> back in 2018, a lot of it went to a company called Rubius Therapeutics, which raised a very large amount of money, was founded by flagship pioneering, and was part of this wave, I think, of kind of post-Moderna early stage biotech splashy launches where suddenly in a world in which companies used to talk about their drugs and their pipelines, everything had become a platform and everything was revolutionary. And to quote from Rubius's uh, great heralding press release, life-changing therapies were in the offing despite the fact that they, like many of the companies of this era, had not actually run a clinical Isn't trial. This where you guys like coined the phrase hypeline. It was about Rubius, right? It is. It was they were they were one of the first hypeline companies, exactly. So cut to the present, Rubius, uh, which had been seeking strategic alternatives, which tells you that things did not lives were not changed as as promised, um, decided to just dissolve the company and liquidate what remaining assets it had. Um, that was news we got this week. And you know, we talked about does this really matter? Companies Go kaput every day. But I think what we, well, not every day, but either way, I think what we settled on was that it did feel like kind of a marker of something that just as Rubius was a high watermark in an era of, you know, people describe as frothy. We spoke to Vosner Simon last week about how the availability of capital in biotech seems to have led some people to get a little over their skis. This example seems to be pretty clarifying in that respect. And so the end of Rubius seemed worth. Noting, and then similar this week alone, we've seen three other companies either announce that they're seeking those strategic alternatives, or in two cases, uh, just on Thursday, two longtime biotech companies that were doing reverse mergers, basically leaving the world of extant companies so as to allow somebody else to use their stock ticker. Yeah, I think there is a, a reckoning going on in biotech. We've talked about this before. We've written about it. Uh, you know, a lot of companies were formed back in the go-go years. Uh, raise a lot of money, and and that money uh, is running out, and it's difficult to find uh, new sources of capital, and so companies are having to make some really hard decisions. You know, cutting programs, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, firing, laying off workers. Uh, you know, we we shouldn't forget that amongst all this restructuring, that there are people involved that get caught up in all of this, uh, and you know, people lose their jobs, and hopefully they will find new ones. Um, you know, I thought one of the interesting ones this week, though, Damien and Meg, was Graphite Bio, which announced this week that it was, it's also sort of restructuring, it, it cut its, you know, it's a it's a CRISPR-based, a gene, a gene editing company that uh, the lead program was in sickle cell. And uh, what's remarkable, I think, about Graphite is that, you know, they only went public in 2021, uh, you know, they raised a good amount of money. So, you know, they basically went from, you know, IPO to restructuring, laying off about half of their workforce in a relatively short period of time. So last week, we talked about Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, the entrepreneur, investor, chairman of Royvant, um, who we thought was probably getting ready to run for president. And now it's official. Damien, tell us what happened. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So we, uh, as we surmised, the hiring of a whole staff of people to run a campaign did, in fact, indicate that Vivek was about to begin a campaign, which he did uh, this week. And, you know, as we spoke last week, 
I think a lot of the way that he's differentiated himself in mass media is in attacking ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing, and how the uh, basically political and social whims of large asset managers are at odds with those of many Americans. Um, he has more than that, it turns out. So in his uh, in announcing his bid for president, did he write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called Why I'm Running for President, and runs through some of those things. It, it basically boils down to he wants to roll back basically every federal requirement uh, as it applies to affirmative action. He wants to reform immigration, moving away from a lottery system toward a merit-based system such that only the most... I don't know, meritorious uh, people from other countries are granted citizenship in this country. And then he has a lot to say about what America needs to do to combat the modern Soviet Union with respect to uh, thwarting America's progress, which is, of course, China. And that includes uh, disinvestment and banning TikTok for kids uh, under 16 and a few other measures like that. So we're starting to see um, the Ramaswamy campaign take shape ideologically, you know, it remains unclear, as we said last week, how, where his lane might be between the presumed front runners of Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. We've seen a lot of videos, including one, and we, we can talk about the reaction to this among some biotech people, but I watched one of his videos about, you know, what he stands for and where he stands out. And, and he talks about unifying America under you know, some of these more libertarian principles um, that I just mentioned, and that, you know, some of the things that divide us are just petty differences. And one of the allegedly petty differences he lists is whether ivermectin is a treatment for COVID-19, which seems like a very pointed inclusion. Um, I assume a lot of these videos are kind of reverse engineered based upon, you know, research into what potential voters want to hear. But I think that that stood out in my ears, and I know it did to a few other people as well. So, Damien, uh, you know, Vivek, we know Vivek because of, as Meg said, as his Role kind of founding Royvant and and currently or most recently chairman of Royvant. You know, yeah, he I guess is, he stepped uh, down three days ago. He, he <laughs> stepped down, I right? Didn't he stepped realize. down from yeah. right. He stepped down from that role uh, to run the campaign. Um, but you know, that's you know, again, but that's also why we're talking about him, right? We're not talking about a lot of other uh, would be presidential candidates. We're talking about Vivek because he is from our world. Uh, you uh, you actually wrote one of the earliest profiles of Vivek back in 2016. You spent some time with him. You talked to him about Roy Vant and what they were doing. So maybe remind some of our listeners who who were not that familiar with it what what that story is like. What give us a little bit of the history? Sure. So yeah, the origin story of Vivek is he's this. You know, everybody describes him as a very, very intelligent kind of polymath guy at Harvard who goes onto Wall Street and gets a law degree at night while working at a hedge fund, um, picking which drug stocks will succeed and which will not. I think quite famously, or at least most lucratively, um, he had bet pretty heavily on pharmacyclics before Gilead Sciences bought it for a whole bunch of money. And that was sort of like a rainmaker investment. But somewhere along the way there, did he get this idea, and this is kind of the, the official origin story of, of Royvant, that there are so many good drugs out there that are just trapped in the bureaucracies and nonsensicalities of big pharma. And if someone, like an astute hedge fund manager, could just pluck them and develop them without um, the issues that might plague them at, at their relative homes, you could make a really successful drug company out of that. So Royvent was designed as like this money ball idea that they would look at the pipelines of other firms, pick out winners that were simply going to languish because of just all the various things that large drug companies do um, and develop them on their own. And this would be, as, as he once described it, the potential Berkshire Hathaway 
of the drug industry. Now, whether that succeeded, I mean, I don't even know what a Berkshire Hathaway of drugs means. Um, but cut to the present, Royvent has gotten five drugs FDA approved. I think the, the thing that sticks out in a lot of people's memories is the one that didn't work, which was an Alzheimer's treatment from Axivant, which had its own big IPO. And, you know, we spent a lot of time and, and brain cells will never get back. Uh, debating that drug and that company and the merits of how it came to be. But in the fullness of Vant, um, if you will, I think, you know, five five FDA approved drugs is probably pretty decent. But I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Adam? What am I missing about like the context of how Vivek was viewed by his peers in biotech? I did reach out to a few people about him, uh, you know, after the announcement that he was running for president. And I have to say, you know, and I'm not going to name names and, and I don't, it's not really fair, but I... He doesn't really have the most sort of favorable reputation amongst his peers. I think he's kind of comes across. I mean, I think people recognize him as highly intelligent, uh, very driven. Uh, I think they appreciate what Roy Vant was trying to do and what, like, like you mentioned, has accomplished. I mean, you know, getting five drugs approved is, you know, is a, is a it's pretty decent. It's a pretty decent track record. Um, but maybe on the on the critical side, I think people don't necessarily see him as like the most sincere person and that much of what he did, he maybe he takes credit for other people's work. Uh, you know, someone noted to me that many of those drug approvals came from ideas that other people had and not not him. Um, and there's just sort of this sort of artificialness about him that and that's kind of one of the things you hear. And again, I, I don't want to kind of get I don't want to like character assassinate the guy right but um you know i think i think it's fair to say that you know he's a controversial figure that that people have um strong opinions one way or the other about him and it's sort of notable that at least through the the lens of twitter which uh, granted is not a great lens that he's seeing some of the reactions um from his peers by and by peers i mean people in the biotech pharma world um investor world who are sort of scoffing a little bit at this presidential bid, uh, feeling like it's not really to be taken seriously. And, you know, he look, he may prove everybody wrong. I mean, you know, like we said last week, I mean, you know, look, stranger things have happened and uh, and, you know, he will live or die in this campaign based on his ideas and and the themes he puts forward and whether he can get people to uh, to vote for him. One thing to note is that while Vivek has not uh disclosed his personal net worth. He apparently, this is according to a Wall Street Journal story, didn't dispute an estimate, uh, calling it around $500 million. And he told the journal that he is willing to invest some, you know, significant amount of his own funds into this campaign. So at the very least, we'll get to see this play out for a few more months. A fight between Vertex Pharmaceuticals and insurance companies has caught patients with cystic fibrosis and their families in the financial crosshairs, leaving them with crushing drug costs. The struggle to afford life-saving cystic fibrosis drugs is not just a familiar story about high-priced medicines. It's also about a complicated fight with insurance companies over tools they use to restrict reimbursement. Our stat colleague Ed Silverman wrote a story this week about Vertex, insurers, and the patients caught in the middle. He joins us now to discuss it. Welcome back to the podcast, Ed. Hi, and thanks for having me. So, Ed, we'll get into the complexities of this fight in a moment. But first, tell us about Dan Brickey and his two-year-old daughter. 
Well, the Brickies live about an hour and a half south of Salt Lake City, and uh, they have three small children. Uh, two of them are two-year-old twin daughters. Uh, Dan Bricky is uh, a nurse in a local hospital. His wife, Christy, is a kindergarten teacher. And um, their challenge is that one of their twin daughters, two-year-old Allie, has cystic fibrosis. And they more or less were able to manage her disease and the complications, um, but they ran into a financial snag late last year. And that's where the story picks up. So tell us about what that financial snag was um, and the importance of the medicine that Allie was taking. Allie was taking, or is still taking, um, a cystic fibrosis medicine, one of a few manufactured by one particular company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. And basically, it helps her manage the disease. There are other medicines and other forms of care that are typically required for anyone who has cystic fibrosis, but it was helping her to function. And that's the key bottom line important goal, and it was working for her. The Brickies one day um, were notified that their health plan circumstances, let's call it, were changing. It's very complicated, and a lot of it involves behind-the-scenes machinations. But the bottom line was uh, they'd suddenly have to start paying a lot more for their daughter's medicine. Um, on an annualized basis, it was going to jump from $180 for their out-of-pocket costs for a year to approximately $43,600 this year, 2023. They didn't see it coming. There's no way they could have. Uh, they simply learned of it in the fall, just before what's called open enrollment season, when m many Americans are sitting down trying to figure out which health plan they should choose, whether it's offered by an employer or it's a government program. So that on top of the surprising and very large increase, the timing was also quite inopportune. And so as you get it in your story, the reason for that increase was that Vertex was changing its copay assistance model, basically a, a, a program in which drug companies will help cover the copay costs for um, patients and families who get their drugs. And so, you know, the natural reading is like greedy drug company doing thing to pry more money from patients. But as your story makes clear, it's a lot more complicated than that. Vertex's reasons for doing this. Why did Vertex slash its copay assistance? Well, yes, it's very complicated. And really, it's rooted in a sort of chicken or the egg situation. Uh, cystic fibrosis, like a lot of diseases, um, requires a lot of research uh, to come up with useful, effective medicines. And we've seen over the years medicines for these so-called specialty, hard-to-treat chronic diseases end up with large price tags. And so what happens behind the scenes is that the insurance companies feel that they're paying too much of the freight. The drug companies, however, try to help the patients with their out-of-pocket costs because the patients are in the middle of this whole chain here. The drug companies, and not just Vertex, typically will offer copay assistance. It's a form, literally, of assistance. Maybe it's distributed 
in the form of a card or coupon, but it's supposed to help the patient with their, their out-of-pocket costs. And that pretty much was moving along until a few years ago when the health insurers decided to fight back and come up with an insurance tool that would uh, make it more difficult for the um, drug companies that were offering the assistance. So, Ed, explain to us why insurance companies object to these copay assistance programs. From the outside looking in, the copay assistance programs look like a benefit to the patient. The drug companies offer these programs in the form of a coupon or a card to help the patients afford the medicines by essentially minimizing the out-of-pocket and deductible costs. But the health insurers claim it's really a ruse because these are, in this case, certainly with a cystic fibrosis medicine, it's again, it's a chronic hard-to-treat disease and the medicines have high price tags. The health insurers claim, well, these, this copay assistance really just helps the patient think that, well, I'm getting a financial benefit from the manufacturer. So why should I worry what the price tag is? And the health insurers claim that this actually perpetuates a problem in the healthcare system because it does not dissuade the patients from becoming more judicious about the financial cost of the medicine they take. It, maybe there's an alternative medicine for some people who have some illnesses, but they have no incentive to look for an alternative if the manufacturer gives them copay assistance. And for this reason, the health insurance industry believes that copay assistance really does not do anything to wring costs out of the healthcare system. It simply memorializes or perpetuates a desire to take whatever medicine is available regardless of cost. And that raises costs to the whole healthcare system. Mm. And you mentioned insurers now have these like complicated tools to try to fight back against this. And one of them is called a copay accumulator. Can you explain what those do? I'll try. Um, it's a really wonky term. <laughs> and actually, this, this tool has been around a few years already, but um, it's only n recently getting a lot more attention. Um, but any of an accumulator is something that an insurance company, a health plan, will put in place so it doesn't count the value of that copay assistance that's provided by the drug company toward the patient's out-of-pocket drug costs. So in other words, the patient still has the out-of-pocket maximum and deductible to meet without the added benefit of the copay assistance from the drug company. The bottom line as a result is patients are on the hook for overall higher costs. And the only time that they wouldn't see that is if the copay assistance from the drug company is so large that it will continue to cover all of the out-of-pocket expense anyway. And so that brings us to Vertex deciding to slash its copay assistance, which is where we started um, with the Bricky family. And in your story, you quote the chair of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Center Committee saying, Vertex, quote, is playing chicken in hopes of getting patient groups to put pressure on insurers to change their policies vis-a-vis -vis these copay accumulators. Are there signs that that's working or is there another potential resolution to this issue? Because as this is being fought out, as you mentioned, the people who are enduring a negative outcome are the people whose drug costs are posed to skyrocket conceivably if, if they don't change plans or, or find some way of ameliorating it. 
there there is a groundswell of opposition to these copay accumulators. Uh, a, a growing number of so-called patient advocacy groups. They represent different different people with different diseases, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis, arthritis, hemophilia, long list. They're all actively lobbying federal and state lawmakers to introduce legislation that would effectively ban the use of these accumulators. And in fact, there are 16 states around the country where that's already happened. Laws have been enacted in some fashion to ban the accumulators. A bill was just introduced earlier this month in Congress. So there is mobilization here. There's also a lawsuit that was filed by some of these patient groups uh, against HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, for allegedly making it easy or easier for health plans to make use of these accumulator tools. So there is actually not just momentum, but some results on the ground. But the catch is that um, with any wave of state bills and, and subsequently state laws, it's a piecemeal process that takes a long time to play out. Whereas if you have a federal law that obviously has the potential to enact, to affect change much faster. But whether that federal law will gain momentum is unclear because this is actually the second time in the last couple of years where a federal law of this sort to restrict the use of these accumulators was introduced. And the first one didn't really go anywhere. So Ed, I know at the beginning I said that this was, was, this was not a story just about high-priced medicines, but of course we can't ignore the fact that Vertex has priced its CF drugs, you know, very high. These are these are very expensive drugs, as you noted. What did Vertex tell you about either the way it prices these drugs or the reasons why it's kind of taken this aggressive step to, you know, to slash its patient assistance program? Well, one thing we should note about this situation, which makes it rather unique and noteworthy, is that Vertex, for one, had been offering patient assistance that was approximately $100,000 a year to each patient. That's a lot of money because it helped a family like the Brickies essentially not worry about whatever their out-of-pocket or deductible costs were. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, the other issue here is that Vertex effectively dominates the market for cystic fibrosis treatments. So with their, they have a few different medicines, including one that's a so-called uh, triple therapy. It's three-in-one combination that's effective for roughly 90% of the people with cystic fibrosis. So they have a very dominant position. So by greatly reducing their copay assistance for patients, uh, they put a, a lot of people, the vast majority of cystic fibrosis patients in, in this country, as, at a sudden financial disadvantage. So um, with that in mind, Vertex has complained that the health insurance companies are really uh, to blame here because what they have done, they pocket much of the health, uh, much of the copay assistance funds that are sent by the drug companies to help patients. And the, the company believes that, as do other drug companies, that the use of an accumulator tool by the health plans is responsible for perpetuating high costs into the healthcare system. Uh, Vertex is saying that right now they're helping the vast majority of their, uh, their 
patients, the cystic fibrosis patients, somehow find a prescription, somehow find assistance. Um, but they're not offering, unfortunately, too many details about how that's actually going to work out because of the way the accumulators function. Unfortunately, a lot of cystic fibrosis patients that are behind the eight ball now financially will, in the, over the next few months, run out of the copay money because Vertex, again, reduced it from 100000 a year to 20000 a year. So unless some of these patients can get grants, and some of them are doing that, and others will, of course, try, but unless that can work as an effective stopgap, some of these people are going to have financial problem in just a few months. Hmm. So this this argument over the copay accumulators, I mean, it seems to be that, as you said, Vertex suggests that the insurers are pocketing, you know, the the assistance that Vertex was paying. And so they're saying we shouldn't keep doing this. But another thing that you note in your story that was I sort of knew conceptually, but just coming across it was like, oh, wow, you know, they made almost $9 billion in revenue last year with $3.3 billion in profits. So what, what we're talking about here is, you know, like an argument that just seems like sort of unfathomable when like on Wall Street, this matters, but like the patients at the end of the day are the people that this company exists for or is supposed to, and they're getting hurt by this. Like, it's just, it like brings you to tears seeing the photos of this family and your story and this little girl who needs these medicines. It's just, it's so sad. Like, I don't know. How do you think that this is sort of people can reconcile this to themselves that like the patients get put in this position, like the people at Vertex or the, I mean, the people, the health insurers, which we, uh, you know, Damien Adam and I don't cover as closely, but it just seems, do they think about the end result when they make these decisions? But but we should also note that health insurers also make billions and billions of dollars. Right, exactly. Too. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's enough blame to go around. That's why I said at the outset, it's a bit of a chicken or egg situation. Uh, everybody's trying to make a profit. And this is a classic case where the patient gets stuck in the middle. Regardless of with which health plan you're on, if you're on a health plan that has an accumulator, and many of them do, I've talked to other patients out there, different Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in different states. The Brickies last year had United Healthcare. Um, the, but on the other side of the equation in this story is just one drug company, Vertex. And it's a more acute situation, again, because Vertex dominates the market. That allows them to maintain the higher prices that they have for their medicines. You've got this yin and yang going on, and there's really no way for the patient to cope with it. You know, if you had a situation where, okay, it's a rheumatoid arthritis treatment, and there's three, four, however many different companies that market very similar treatments, and whatever their prices are, there's competition that does sometimes result in different price points for the different medicines. And then if one or more of them were to do what Vertex did and cut its copay assistance, well, it may not matter as much to as many patients, either in real dollar or percentage terms, because you don't have only one drug company dominating as it does this one particular type of treatment. And so that's what makes this particular story, unfortunately for the Bricky family and others, more dramatic because they don't have any wiggle room. 
even if a doctor could say, hey, let's try one of the other medications, maybe the insurance coverage and the underlying price is different, so the financial outcome is different. Well, we don't have that here. But for this reason, this kind of scenario underscores the difficulties, the real problems that can occur when you do have this battle between pricing on one hand from drug companies and the efforts by health plans to figure out how they're going to make their own profit in the course of making the drugs available. It, it's, a, it's a very unfortunate situation, but it's very real. And even if it doesn't come up all the time because there aren't always therapeutic categories where one drug company dominates, it's still, as I say, a very difficult, real problem for X number of patients in this country. And I think it underscores that we could see more of that unless there's some way to sort of peel back the underlying struggle over pricing and not just pricing, but access and affordability. Well, Ed, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you pronounce it angst or angst. <laughs> you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.